Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Now, the word Russophilia means an admiration or fondness for Russia and its history. My guest this week loves Russia. Now, that's saying something because it's the hugest country in the world by far, and it's home to countless different ethnic groups, some of whom would be happy not to be part of that big empire. My guest visited Russia the first time when she was 16 years old, and she's worked for the Moscow Times, which is now an online-only English-language daily devoted to news in Russia. My guest, who has written a book dealing with things Russia, is Tristra New Year Yeager, an old friend of the show. Tristra, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me back, Michael. The book you released in 2018 was called The Tomb in the Stone. That was a Siberian historical fantasy. It was an epic adventure of the 19th century search for Genghis Khan's tomb. But there's a whole new series of books coming out under the byline. It's your byline. <laughs> you got Tea it. Key New Year. For some odd reason, you don't want to use your full name. Maybe, maybe not. To protect the it. to protect the innocent and in, in my family, so <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna foist it on the New Year side. Now, this new book is in the genre. Cli-fi. I love that. Yeah. Cli-fi. What is cli-fi? Well, it's a little bit of a neologism. It combines sci-fi and climate fiction. So it's an attempt to use sci-fi to grapple with some of the issues and questions that are coming up around climate change and how we're adapting to it or not. Now, I've got in my hand here book one of this series. It's called Starfall. Is that the name of the series, too? Or? Yeah. Okay. I'm not very creative when it comes to titling the individual volumes, so it's all just Starfall. Starfall. And again, the author, T. New Year, who is actually Tristra New Year Jaeger, our guest this week. This series is not going to be set in Russia or anywhere near it. In fact, it's going to be really close to us here in Bloomington. Yes, indeed. I have an unhealthy obsession with New Harmony, Indiana, as well as Russia. Uh, maybe New Harmony has almost replaced my Russophilia with a completely different historical fascination. Oh, my. Yeah, yes. So for the, about the last 10 years, I've been reading and devouring everything I could find uh, about this little town. And I don't know if everyone listening has ever been there. I know uh, it has a special place in a lot of Hoosiers' hearts, but it is a wonderful place about two hours southwest of, in, of Bloomington on the Wabash, where a very eccentric sort of 19th century equivalent of a tech bro or a, 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 tech, <laughs> a tech billionaire decided he would try to uh, buy a whole town and set up the perfect society. So he had a lot of very, at the time, radical ideas. Like he had a lot of problems with the institution of marriage, uh, with uh, religion, with a bunch of other, and he was hoping to create in, you know, a, what he called a society of equality. His was name this is almost right at the time of 
uh, the fellow who started the Mormons. A uh, uh, little bit Smith. before, yeah, right. This there was, you know, there was a whole interesting time as both like the Second Great Awakening and this fascination with communal living um, and societies and ways to build intentional uh, villages or communities that would promote greater equality and um, economic prosperity. So this idea of cooperation was really, really exciting for a lot of people looking for a less exploitative way forward. So Robert Owen, who is the guy in question, who's the the tech bro of yesteryear. Um, <laughs> poor, I'm sorry, Robert, for, the, for bad, bad, bad mouthing you that way. Well, um, if he hears this, he's he going to raise this, He's going to let yeah. me know. Yeah. Um, so he, he was a really interesting guy. He came from a very humble background. He was Welsh. He ended up kind of rising through the ranks of what was at the time a really crazy crazy expansion of industrial power that we often refer to as the industrial revolution in uh, Britain and he became basically the owner and overseer of a place called New Lanark in Scotland and he was so appalled by the conditions that working people worked and lived in that he decided he was going to to arrange things so that people would have different conduct and society would function more smoothly. He had, of course, an ulterior motive. He wanted with the profit motive. He wanted the company to make more money. But he saw that he could do that by benefiting the workers, which at the time was super radical. The idea that someone's conditions could change their behavior and their um, character and the idea that this could be beneficial to capitalism, for lack of a better way to put it. This wasn't the only fella in the 19th century to come up with ideas like that. There mm-hmm. was Hershey. Oh, yeah. And there was Pullman. That They created actual whole towns exactly. and areas the, for their companies. This was super early. That's part yeah. of the really interesting thing. We're talking about the 1820s. Uh-huh. So in some ways, Owen and Owen's ideas weren't super original, but his boldness in articulating them and his real obsession with putting them into practice really set him apart from a lot of the other thinkers and radicals and organizers of the era. But he definitely was not an original thinker. But he was a very passionate guy, great speaker, extremely charismatic. And he decided that America was the best place to really launch a complete experiment to see if his system worked. There was a lot of wilderness. Exactly, exactly. You could get, you could kind of find yourself a, a little secluded spot and bring people there and see if you could set things up to their benefits. So he had a whole, um, it's kind of funny, it's almost like, it looks almost like a quad from a an English university in mind <laughs> that he wanted to build on the banks of the Wabash. And he brought this, he had an architect design it, he brought a model, and he showed it to Congress and everyone, I think, clapped politely and said, oh yeah, sure, that sounds great, whatever, guy, just go do your thing. Is he, this before Indiana is a state? This was a few years after Indiana became an actual state. All right. Um, so what Owen did was he bought the entire town of Harmony, which was founded by a German pietist sort of millenarian group that had come to sort of wait out the second coming in Indiana, as one does. Um, <laughs> and they built <laughs> What the, else? They had this marvelous, beautiful village that they built in the matter of 10 years, and they were producing several times more goods and per capita compared to the other folks around them on the frontier. So they had this extraordinary prosperity um, due to the fact that they were um, both celibate and extremely dedicated to the cause. So wow. it was a very specific community. But how, do you, how do you buy a town? 
Well, they the the Harmony Society, which were the the Germans who were in um, who had built Harmony, decided that it was getting too cushy for them, and things were getting a little too nice, and that they wanted to go back. They also wanted to be closer to the the markets that they served, so uh-huh. they made a lot of manufactured goods that they wanted to get back to larger cities and settlements. Where whereas like the Wabash isn't always navigable, That's it's right. not the best not the best place if you want to get all your stuff to you know, the markets. So they moved back to Pennsylvania and they wanted to get rid of their Indiana town because they're like, what are we going to do with two towns, right? So Owen, um, they they tapped a, a, a local English uh, guy who went over and showed a prospectus to Owen is like, this is a great town. And Owen's like, cool. Like I'm a in. real estate agent. It's totally, totally. <laughs> so Owen goes and he um, he goes to see New Harmony and he buys it and he's like, this is great. And then he spends next to no time there. <laughs> <laughs> However, he did bring his family over and one of um, Indiana's most amazing uh, early figures, Robert Dale Owen, was his son, his eldest son. And he sort of started out in New Harmony um, and then went on to do some really amazing things like everything from having a really instrumental role in the Smithsonian and designing its unusual architecture. He's really into architecture. You can see a little bit of his brainchild in New Harmony. There's a small building that resembles the Smithsonian. And it's like this super crazy laboratory, which if you're in New Harmony, you have to check it out. And I would do anything to get inside it. And he was a, he was a senator for Indiana. And he um, was really instrumental in doing things like putting more women-friendly uh, divorce laws in place in oh. our state. Um, so he was both someone who really, you know, talked the radical talk and really tried to implement it within the bounds of, of American establishment. Pretty incredible guy. So no polygamy or anything on that order. Robert Dale Owen, in his you know late bio- autobiography, says, oh, nothing like that happened. But, you know, free love was on the table. There were some, um, as, as Robert Dale Owen put it, quote unquote, unfortunate matches. Um, so <laughs> some things happened. There was a lot of freedom, a lot of interaction between um, men and women that was uncharacteristic of the era. In the 1800s, the 19th century, free love was an idea. Yeah. And Robert Dale Owen was one of the first, was the first person to write a birth control manual in the U.S. and publish it. This is like not the things people want to talk about when they talk about Hoosier history. But he was, he had a whole manual. It was very, it was stuff all about quote unquote physiology <laughs> and how to, how couples could have a happy life together by practicing this certain method, and um, obviously before the Comstock laws, uh, oh, where yeah. you couldn't Those spread were much that later. stuff around yeah, through yeah. the postal service. I think it was so new, um, yeah. and there was one or two, there were one or two publications in Britain, um, and he took some took some notes from there. But it was really came from him, and and I, I like to think probably from the women around him. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, he was a really really interesting figure. So as you can tell, there's a lot going on in New Harmony. Well, how how did he get people? Good question. There, he went around both to like small frontier towns like Vincennes, and to you know along the way uh, as he was going, he went. He basically, he and a bunch of folks went down the Ohio and then back up the Wabash. And all along the way, he's like, hey, come join me. Come join me. And so he basically was like, hey, everybody, come one, come all. Let's have the perfect society. A PR man. He was really good at PR. and he, But he, it was a terrible idea, right? Because who do you need in a small frontier village? You need like coopers and blacksmiths and people to make bricks and people to burn lime and really, really, you know, gut bucket basic tasks. Yeah. 
And he was inviting like scientific illustrators and, oh. you know, maybe there were some people who were like lawyers or, you know, free thinking people who had some professional skills, but it was very difficult to find qualified farmers. So one of one really interesting example of that is some shakers who were who caused such an uproar in uh, Pleasant Hill, Kentucky, that they were kicked out of the shaker community. They were like, they're, they're still talking about them today, <laughs> like down there. Um, they were so obnoxious in their like anti-shaker agitation. They ended up in New Harmony and they, they knew how to farm. And so within like a couple weeks of them arriving, everyone's like, okay, great, you're in charge. You go do this. <laughs> like they got really high ranking positions in the New Harmony administra- like, administration. And it's like how these people just walked in, right? You know, and they, so there were so few people who knew what they were doing. Yeah. That kind of is a great indication of how, you know, how, how desperately they needed people with actual practical skills. Sort so, of like the original arrivals from Britain yeah. uh, to the new world yeah. in the 1600s, the people who didn't know what the heck they were doing. Absolutely. So this is a great pro tip. If you're starting a com a commune <laughs> or an intentional community, make sure you have people that know how to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so New Harmony is an amazing town, though, and it still retains this incredible spirit of inquiry, progressive thinking. It has all these amazing firsts for Indiana or for the U.S. Um, and these amazing people that either, either were attracted there or were related to people who, you know, like the Owens, who were kind of the foundational people. So one of those people is a woman named Frances Wright, who I am like absolutely determined that everyone should know who she is. She is um, one of the first probably one of the first American feminists. Before, a lot of times we think of like mid-19th century as the first women's rights activists, but she preceded them. They actually worshipped her. Um, Mary Shelley had a lock of her hair, for example. Wow. I mean, that, she's not an f- American feminist, but that's uh, she went viral. Like people had her portrait. Um, people, there were riots at her at her lectures, and she kind of got her. I mean, she got her start before then. But New Harmony was extremely important to her development as a speaker and a thinker. And she had her own intentional community in Tennessee, <laughs> where she attempted to prove that um, we could abolish slavery peacefully by uh, a complicated system that involved, and, and I'm sorry, but there's really no other way to talk about this. It's very paternalistic. It's extremely problematic from our modern perspective, but at the time was seen as wildly radical. Right. So a, a community would purchase enslaved people, have them work in the community side by side with non-enslaved people until they contributed enough to the community that they paid back their purchase price. So this is, it's difficult to hear now because on one hand, you're like, oh, that's great. You know, the idea was eventual liberation. Um, However, it's still within the structure of slavery. And in that way makes it very instructive. Like we are into modern Americans in that we need to acknowledge, modern white Americans in particular, we need to acknowledge there are systems that we cannot simply evade by feeling good about something or having virtuous perspectives, right? So in some ways, what Frances Wright was trying to do and her like kicking against this bulwark of the institution of slavery, I found extremely compelling, right? Because on one hand, no one asked the enslaved people if they wanted to do this, right? (laughs) They They didn't get a say. 
Um, but they I mean, were just bought. They were purchased and or donated by, um, and that means often they were the more um, the, either they had health issues or they were complicated oh. people. Yeah. <laughs> um, from a slave from an enslaver's perspective, however, at the same by the same token, she did take care of these folks. She did liberate them and made sure they could move to Haiti, which at the time was one of the only safe places for oh, yes. um, liberated formerly enslaved people. So there's just a whole raft of moral issues that to me tugged at me really hard and as a white American made me think extremely deeply about my own position and our own deep history. Uh-huh. And in an era when people are talking about not talking about slavery, I kind of want to, I want to yell even louder, we need to understand this. And especially, especially white Americans need to really get at the history and understand the laws, the legal framework, the, the nitty gritty, because the whole goal of slavery, the, the legal framework of slavery, one of the main goals, at least, was to keep white Americans and black Americans apart. Yeah. And the more we acknowledge that, the more we can see this dynamic playing out in our modern situation. It continues despite Absolutely. the fact that slavery doesn't exist. Yes, yes. And so, you know, history has a very long um, half-life and it <laughs> doesn't die the second you declare something legally abolished. Right. It's and it's it's really important for us uh, again for white Americans in particular because we to look this square in the eyes and and understand how things got to be the way they are and and you know but you can't you know you've got to make room for the heart in all this right like you can understand the facts and the reason I wrote a novel and why I hope people engage with it and read it is because I want them to sort of find other ways to look at their sentiments and find surprising things in the past that might shine a light in a new way and help them make their own breakthrough. Again, our guest this week is Tristra New Year Yeager. Her byline is T New Year. The new book is called Starfall. It's book one of a four-book series, Cli-Fi, which she has already defined for us. (laughs) Gee, I love that title, Um, uh, that genre. She is also the author of The Tomb in the Stone, which dealt with uh, Siberia, was historical fantasy. But this will have to do with historical fantasy, also future fantasy. Exactly. The book, again, Starfall. So you, you fell in love with this whole idea of thinking about and studying and researching yeah. New Harmony mm-hmm. and these wild-eyed people who came up with this idea, and they have something going there. And then you decide to write this series of novels. Well, it was a complicated process because on one hand, New Harmony has a lot of novels written about it comparatively. For a town uh-huh. of its size, it probably has more novels per capita, which uh-huh. is great. And there, uh, there's so many wonderful ones. The Angel in the Forest, The Town of the Fearless. So about every 30, 40 years, someone writes a novel. There's one called um, Fanny and Fanny, which is about um, Fanny Trollope and Fanny Wright, which isn't exactly about New Harmony, but is about some of the people related to it. So there's a whole New Harmony 
oeuvre, right, or body of work. And Did I you was, have to read these? I read some of them. I have to say The Angel in the Forest is, I haven't gotten all the way through it. It's it's a modernist book, so sometimes you're just like, I can't take this paragraph. Like, it's just, too, I, I'm sorry. That's just my personal thing. It's a beautifully written book, and I totally recommend it. And it's a little bit like high, it's got that sort of early mid-century kind of like, like, it's hard to explain, but it's a beautiful book. The the um, Town of the Fearless is absolutely charming. It's based on family stories from the Owen family, but it's written in just exquisite, very fanciful, beautiful prose. And it's extremely heartwarming and very funny. There's lots of really funny anecdotes in there. So I was like, I can't write another historical novel about New Harmony. Like, I don't want to do like a bodice ripper. I don't want to do, you know, I was like, what do I do? And I had this weird idea about writing about Indiana post-climate change that I'd been playing around with before. And then I had this other idea that was running in parallel about writing about Indiana post-climate change. Because I spend a lot of time hiking out in the woods. I'm out walking outside every day. Um, It's one of the things I really love to do. And I was just looking at nature, observing it and thinking, wow, what's going to happen here? And with the projections that Indiana will become a lot wetter, uh-huh. I was like, what is this going to be like? So, I started, Especially during wintertime. Exactly. Lots of precipitation in wintertime. That's right. So we're going to be a much damper, not, maybe not swampier, but much more flood-prone area. Mm-hmm. And so I started to imagine what would that mean for future Hoosiers. And this somehow unwound into this insane, <laughs> this insane kind of sci-fi story about – um, a young woman who has uh, what I call an integrated intelligence. So she has AI in her implanted in her skull. Ah. Um, and she is a specialist in fixing a certain kind of equipment and winds up in Bloomington, which is a little bit different. Same vibe, a little different in the future. And she goes on a mission to fix a piece of equipment with this very surly um, security contractor And everything goes absolutely wrong. And she winds up with this contractor having a very bizarre experience out in the wilderness. And all sorts of crazy things ensue. And she ends up eventually in New Harmony. But along the way, we get to meet all the people who've adapted to future Indiana. So it it was extremely fun to imagine. The whole goal of all this was to how do how do I take the spirit of New Harmony and translate it for people in our extremely skeptical, cynical, dystopian prone era, right? How do I take that feeling of like we could fix this, right? They believed it. They believed like we can oh, make sure. this we can make this work. We can figure this out. This is within our grasp if we just do it right. And we've lost that that place to go. Yeah. Mentally and in our imaginations. Yeah. So how do we get back there? We're helpless. We are. Well, we, we can't. We don't know how to. We're stuck in grief. We're stuck yeah. in, in anxiety. We're stuck in terror. And instead of having someplace to go where we could say, hey, right now, we don't know exactly how we're going to get through this, but we would really like things to look like this. And so imagining a future new harmony, which was super fun with scientists and you know, technologists and just everyday people. The probably one of the most fun times I've ever had uh, writing anything. It was just ridiculously fun. Now, if you want to get your hand on this new book one of the Starfall series, it is entitled Starfall. 
And the byline is Teen New Year. My guest this week, Tristra New Year Yeager. Go to newyearmedia.com slash books. That's your new website. Yep, yep. Or you can go to starfallbook.info. It's also at bookstores and everywhere else that you can get books. Sure. Okay. (laughs) How do you do your writing? I mean, you've got kids. Yes. And, you know, you've got a home, you've got a job. I do have a job. You work for Rock, Paper, Scissors. Yep. When, when do you find time to write? I am a an extreme early bird. So the time I found to write has been mostly at around 5 a.m. Get out. I am. But that's my natural thing. I Wait, think at that time, I'm still crying into my pillow. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> How can you be right? I do that at 8 p.m. Oh, okay. All right. I get that out of the way early. That's how you get to sleep. Exactly. Exactly. So I tend to have my most creative time really early in the morning. So I wake up, I make myself sit and write and mess around with stuff for an hour, and then I go and walk my dog in the dark, which is uh, where I get a lot of other ideas, and then I don't have time to write them down. But I try I try my best to sort of quickly jot them down when I get back. But I find that it. I, I am fortunately a fairly fast writer. Uh, but yeah, it's taken me a couple years to put all the pieces together. Paper and pen. I, I am a I am laptop all the way. I, if I tried to write something creative with the paper and pen, I'm completely stymied. I I want to encourage everyone out there that you can you can do it. I mean, if you have a creative urge, there are ways to find the time to work on it. Um, I, I I often take retreats, which isn't. I know something everyone can do, meaning like I go away for a weekend and yeah. basically work for 12 hours at a stretch and don't talk to anyone, yeah. often in New Harmony, which I highly recommend if wow. you're if you're looking for, a, it's the quietest town in Indiana. It is so quiet, um, almost too quiet. Uh, it's about an hour and a half, would that's you say, right. yeah. down yeah, yeah. Uh, Interstate 69. Uh, yep. And then you, I think you cut off by Washington. Or you can go further to 64 and oh. head towards Illinois, and then it's just another 25 minutes from there. I encourage everyone to go there. There's a wonderful tour. Um, there's all sorts of great exhibits. There's a wonderful library that doubles as the local museum called the Working Men's Institute. And yeah. on the second floor, they have amazing paintings and all sorts of artifacts from the 19th century. Just, it's a super cool place and everyone there is really nice and they'd love for you to come down and visit. We've got it here. Uh, It's in my hand. It's out. The uh, main character's name is Xenia. Yes. Like the town in Ohio? Yeah. Well, like, or like um, the Greek word for stranger. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, see what I did there? Xenophobia. <laughs> there we yes. go. Yes, yes. Ah. But it's also a pretty common name in. Um, uh, you know, it, it comes up in in Russia in any sort of Eastern Orthodox context. Like it's a com- Greek. It's from the Greek, so it, it it's a not an unheard of uh, female name. Any name that starts or ends with X uh, makes a good uh, a future sci-fi name. There we go. Name. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta let Elon know. I'm sure he'd he'd love it. <laughs> Again, Tristra New Year Jaeger. She's a novelist. She has written The Tomb in the Stone that came out in 2018, a Siberian historical fantasy. But now she's got out, and here it is. Starfall, book one of the four-book Starfall series. Again, go to newyearmedia.com slash books. 
Go to your bookstore. Go to all the places that you normally go to find books. They will be there. Tristra, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a blast as always. 